0: So while you've got you know the very strong focus and a very targeted vision, you've also got this really unfettered joy at what you are embarking on as well.
1: Welcome to Experiences You Should Have, your how to guide for amazing experiences. I'm Gail, your host, and I have something Fun in store for you today. I interviewed a very intriguing woman, Michelle Yana Chan, about her experience of participating in the Peking to Paris Motor Rally. Now, a little bit more on Michelle. Michelle Yana Chan is an award-winning journalist and travel editor of Vanity Fair. She's also a contributing editor at the Condé Nast Traveler, presenter of the BBC's Global Guide, contributor to BBC Radio's Fours from Our own correspondent, and a writer for the Daily Telegraph. Michelle has also been named the Travel Media Awards Travel Writer of the Year, and she's also the author of a new book, Song, which comes highly recommended, which more information can be found on Michelle and her new book on com, and in the show notes for this episode. So Michelle, she knows what she's talking about. And she introduced me to the world of Motor Rallies. I had never heard of the Peking to Paris Motor Rally until I spoke with Michelle. And I'm not one who knows much about cars either, but her fervor for the event is contagious. And let's just say that my interest is peaked. Now Peking is now Beijing, but the name of the Motor Rally hasn't changed. The rally started in 1907, and there have been seven of these races so far, with the last one just ending on July 7th in 2019. In recent years, this race has been happening every three years, so it's time to get your plan on to be a part of the Peking to Paris Motor Rally in 2022. It's never too early to start planning an epic experience. And this episode, an interview with Michelle, will at least give you a good start into what you need to do to make this experience happen. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me on Experiences. You should have your how to guide for amazing experiences. And I am so excited to hear about your experience of being in the Peking to Paris Motor Challenge. So, welcome.
0: Thank you, Gail. Thank you for having me on your show.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, let's Jump right in, and can you tell our listeners uh, about your experience of being in the race to Peking to Paris?
0: Um, to be in the race, well, that's jumping far ahead from um, the genesis of it, which is um, coming together, finding a co driver, finding a vehicle, preparing it for the rally, getting it to Beijing, and starting. The race, but if you just want to kind of capture some of the spirit of of you know actually being, as you say, kind of on a track or on a road or off road, uh, more to the point as you often were in Mongolia. It's um it really is um you know perhaps you can liken it to something you know, a teams a competitive team sport because there is two of you and you're you are um you know against all these other drivers around you. Um but on steroids because you um this is in an adult world where you've left um kind of the freedom and frivolity perhaps of kind of school competitive sport and this is something that you've taken time out of work, you've invested a lot of money. It was not really an investment, you just spent a lot of money.
1: yeah
0: and you are um you know for us we were really trying to win. So I think maybe that's um the very honest underpinning for how it felt i think uh, perhaps you might not get that from everyone and maybe not everyone wants to win as much as we did some just want to participate in a car that probably isn't ever gonna win but we 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 really did and so so if you could if i could try and kind of um get across how it felt to be in that vehicle going as fast as you could um Without breaking it, which we often did every day, <laughs> then it is um, this very powerful kind of kinship between two drivers. So one acts as a driver, one acts as a navigator, and often that role is flipped. And it's a really intense amount of concentration. Um, that, that said, there is this this transcendental sense of fun too. Um, it's pretty wacky and it's quite wild. And so while you've got you know, the, this very strong focus and a very targeted vision, you've also got this really unfettered joy at what you're embarking on as well.
1: Wow. All right. I am interested and I think our listeners are too. Um, so let's really walk through... What is this race, the the Peking to Paris Motor Challenge?
0: Well, it's called, um it's probably quite inappropriate nowadays, the Peking to Paris, as opposed to using um, the modern day um, version of China's capital, Beijing, because it started in 1907 when a lot of the people in the West called um, the city Peking and, and the founders of the race too. So it's, began over a hundred years ago, and it was really then more a, a proof that the motor car could travel long distances. That, that was kind of the, the founder's vision. Um, and it was successful. You know, it, it, There was two, uh, you know, at least there was a winner, but there wasn't very many participants, but there was this sense that you know, this new invention could actually travel transcontinentally halfway around the world. Um, the idea was that then this, you know, that this would become a regular feature on our calendars, which it didn 't it 's currently it 's still we 're not quite at the finish line yet, but this year is another peaking to paris and and the last decade plus they 've been running every three years. Um, but there was a huge um, absence of the peaking to Paris for a long time, and so it's actually this is only the seventh one in two thousand and nineteen that's that 's actually happening wow.
1: um,
0: and it 's a but now it is happening every three years. It's a vintage and classic car rally that begins in China's capital um, by the, you know, for flourish and the kind of grandeur by the Great Wall of China, um, by a part of it just north of Beijing. And a hundred um, cars, you know, with their driver and navigator team kind of pile in and um, take to the road. The, the journey, the, the actual, um, route the itinerary changes depending on depending on what they've learned from the previous one and so forth but for mine in 2013 um it was about 8,000 miles and you set off and and um is familiar with a, a rally it's quite a, cl- a classic type of rally um in that there will be long stretches which you just have to get to a certain point by a certain time and then you don't use points or you don't lose kind of a position but then there's some some timed trials there's sections of road or off-road where you're going as fast as you can and those are really meaningful when it comes to kind of the adjudicating and, and your positioning and on top of that there was also some track times where you're going around the track with obstacles and so forth so this is quite kind of classic rallying but but for those who don't know about it you know there's this kind of combination of ways that you're tested on your driving skills over the course of that distance and um, and you know all those all that data is put together to kind of come up with a winner so over that kind of a distance it's not just first past the post. Um, all the cars are um, older than the year 1976 and there are various categories so there is an overall winner but um but you know there's classic cars which are slightly new and vintage cars which are slightly older which was the category that we were in and is arguably kind of you know the one that everyone wants to win mm-hmm. and um w- we drove in a 1940 ford coupe or coupe depending on your pronunciation mm. and um and around us were you know all sorts of fascinating um, vehicles from, well, you know, very kind of vintage Bentleys to uh, classic Mercedes. Uh, There was one of my favourites was a 1929 Rolls Royce 20, um, which was beautiful, but I don't think that got through Mongolia at all. (laughs) Um, There was, um, I remember a Jaguar that really founded crossing some floodwater there were some Aussies in a in a 1927 box hall, and um, that that was loaded. I kid you not. Just a few hours after we began the race, it was loaded onto the back of a truck. So some really don't make it. You know, sometimes beyond the first day, and um, wow, and this a 33 day experience, and lots of cars don't make it across Mongolia, and um, and so you know you're seeing them on trucks and some of them decide, oh well, I'll just go home. Some some decide to kind of try and fix it up, and then try and catch up with the race a week later. They're disqualified from kind of competing, but they just want to kind of join the fray. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an extraordinary race. It, it's you know it's arguably the most thrilling, um, the most kind of desired vintage car classic car rally to um, to join, and and it was for me too.
1: Wow. That is, it just feels mind-blowing to me to take these vintage cars on such a long journey. What what are the roads? What's the terrain like to make it from Beijing all the way to Paris?
0: A real mix. Um, so in China, for those first few days before you cross the border into Mongolia, it's tarmac and it's kind of regular roads really. Um, you're kind of winding through the hills and northern China, but, um, but they're all excellent roads. And then you went to Mongolia, and there's some good roads until you hit the capital, Ulaanbaatar. It's a bit of a mix, really. But then, from Ulaanbaatar, the capital of Mongolia, until the Altai and far western border of the country, that is mostly just all off-road, and um, uh, you just choose a track. You know, if there is a track, if, you mm. know, car might have gone that way before or you just make your own you know headway um after you cross it so a lot of the cars um you know come to an end in Mongolia which is quite brutal that it's so soon into the race because if that meant you know if that was at the end then you know there would be a lot more that kind of stayed the course for the first 20 days but on the other hand I think if Mongolia had been at the end if it had been the Paris to Peking you know the cars by that time would be so wrecked, no, maybe no one would get through um, mm-hmm. a like Mongolia. So um, when you hit, in our case, Russia, so the, the route does really change um, time to time. And this is where it would change. Sometimes it goes through the stands and sometimes it goes through Russia. We went um, through Russia a lot. And through the Altai, it was very um, was some, some high altitude passes in, with cars that, you, that really needed to kind of be on oxygen in order to get across some of those passes. And, um, but then after that, it's some really, really gruellingly tough, boring roads of just straight and long, and you've got to do kick some big distances. And you're, you know, there's lots and lots of trucks on these journeys, and they're overtaking, and you're overtaking, and people are overtaking from the other. And that's where um, it felt probably strangely the most dangerous. I didn't think the two danger, the big hazards, were either turning in Mongolia you know for car flips, or um or you know dying on the roads in in eastern Russia which unfortunately you know we did lose someone Mm. um and and then you continue kind of you know push through right I mean the roads are excellent in Russia but they're just busy they're just really busy with traffic and um and then you head into and we headed into Ukraine and then into Europe and Again, like another tough part of Europe, if they take you through the Alps to some of those switchback roads uh-huh. at altitude, again when your car now your car is you know you're just panting to get to Paris at the end, and um and it's tough it's really tough to kind of you know it's, everything's overheating and um and if you know if you haven't I mean we we fix the car every night it felt like I mean it, it was didn't feel like we absolutely fix the car every day and every night there were other vehicles that you know people went to dinner sometimes if we were in the city we, we never went out for dinner and most of the time we were there until um, well a few nights all night we, we then had to sleep in the car um, and take turns to sleep in the car because we hadn't slept kind of the night that we were staying somewhere so so and then finally you kind of leave the Alps and you get into Southeast France and and yes and then it's and then it's very hard to to change your position I'd say so we kind of were there we were in third um in truth we were slightly kind of slipping into fourth and we managed to, to maintain kind a of place on the podium but um it's hard the, the unfortunate thing about you know the last couple of days for us was that um you can't it's very hard then to win if you're not in first position so you, it's slightly um you know, just a just a journey to Paris for the last two days, mm-hmm. and then amazingly, you drive up the Champs Elysees, um, and you head into Place Vendôme, and all these cars are arranged um, in order, and it's extraordinary. And then the French are incredibly supportive, as they always are, with endeavours of this undertaking. the French are just brilliant about that and they just you know come in their droves and ask you all the right questions that make you feel like it was worth it and um and it is a fantastic feeling and you know um we absolutely I mean it was mixed for us of course because um you know we want to well we both of both of us we want to we wanted to win so it was this very mixed feelings of jubilation and and um, and yet, you know, we didn't quite get to where we wanted to. But it, but still, that day of euphoria is um, standing on the bonnet of your car. I think the roof of our car, in fact, while we popped some the champagne. <laughs> it was really great fun.
1: Which I hear that's a race tradition. At the end of the race, you have uh, a big glass of champagne. Is is that right?
0: Oh, I think a big bottle of champagne, I think. Um, so there's no prize, which is always, you know, a lot of people ask that question. It's just for the glory. Um, and you know, I think there's there's a very inexpensive medal that everyone gets for competing and a and a kind of um there's a cup that one can hold above their heads just for the fun of it. But there's no prize at all. It's it's just um for cracking a bottle and slapping each other on the back and feeling good about the last thirty-three days.
1: Wow. I mean this sounds like a true experience. You should have and an adventure uh, across thirty-six days, and thirty-three. Yeah, or yours is thirty-three. Okay, so maybe because of the race length, does that change? Might the yeah, length probably. change over the years?
0: Yeah, sorry, I thought you were referring to maybe something else. No, I think you're right. I mean, the route has changed um, over the years, and. Uh, the itinerary has changed and and I'm sure that you're right that that number is slightly fluid um, in terms of race days and, and definitely in terms of um, where they, there was, there was definitely a race that they were crossing borders and, and now it's more tricky to cross and so forth. And so sometimes it's politics that gets in the way. Sometimes it's just practi- you know, practicals and logistics.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: um, um, and I think also, I think they learned from our race that the really long Russian roads with lots of, um, heavy loaded trucks was, was hot, was hard in a different way for everyone. And of course we had this loss of life. So that probably, um, made them rethink some of the, of the journey that we did.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, why should someone experience this adventure?
0: Why not? I would um, argue straight back. (laughs) I think, uh, it's one you'll never regret. I mean, you know, that I can be sure. Um, it does um, require quite a big outlay of money and, of course, time. Um, but I think that, you know, of course, you know, in my humble opinion, it was incredibly worthwhile. Um, you know, there are ways and means around that, and I've kind of worked on the way and I we also got sponsorship. Um, but they should do it because um, they love traveling, they love cars. They love the sense of occasion and the history that comes before it. Um, they want to perhaps have an interesting, evolving relationship with somebody else who they think would be a good partner for this kind of a journey. Mm-hmm. They want to, um, I mean, I, I would, you know, they're not, you're not going to, nece- you're not having this cultural experience because you're just whizzing through a landscape. But the travel in it is that you're watching two continents change as you're driving and um even if it's a bit of a blur it's a very con- that's a very conscious thing and obviously when we're getting into an airplane and coming out on the other end 10 hours later um it's a very different experience but but by the travel that you get from this is it's not this kind of it's not the, the details or the minutiae that you get from from an ordinary trip but you get um, a very macro sense of how terrain changes and how the shapes of people's faces change and the complexions change and how that actually is this incredibly organic morphing of mm-hmm. people and landscape that of course you lose completely when you, when you fly. So um, so that's the kind of travel experience I think that you have. And, and there are some extraordinary individual experiences that you'll have on route because as much as, a lot of your life um, is going to be spent in the cabin of your vehicle or under <laughs> your vehicle, kind of you know greasy fingered. There are you know you, you discover you will discover that you need a lot of help on the way, and that and this and this strangers, the kindness of strangers is um, is an extraordinary thing, and, and and perhaps that was the most the most meaningful memories of coming from the individuals that that um that we met in in very obscure places you know oh you, you know sometimes we'd stop in the middle of Mongolia we would look around us and it was completely empty of any sign of settlement or life and then you know a family would pop their head up behind a bush and somehow have exactly the right screw that we needed in their back pocket um and it was those kind of um serendipitous encounters that I think are the magic of the Peking to Paris and uh yeah, I would do it again, probably. Um, but there's a lot of other rallies out there. But, you know, I loved it so much that I would, I would consider doing it again.
1: Wow. I absolutely love that description. Uh, let's just get into some logistics here. If one of our listeners is thinking about entering this race, what they need to know um so first off how far in advance should you plan to do this and what are the types of things you've got to sort out in order to even enter the race
0: yeah so it does it unlike most um you know ordinary vacations or even kind of you know climbing a mountain um you know m- much of that can be organized in in days or weeks or you know a few months to get perhaps fit but um but this is is probably years unless you have a vehicle that is rally ready um and plus you know it's become really popular dare I say it, there was a lot of coverage of my race because of you know I was working so I was you know there's a lot of exposure and so since that rally there is um you know it's been much like I think we booked onto it i think maybe 18 months or two years before but now i think i think they're full for the next one and so i think people would be looking at um 2025 although i could be wrong maybe there's a wait list for 2022 um and um and so so you know there's a there's a long lead time but in truth you slightly do need that as i said unless you have a car ready and unless you have you know the funds already because it's it's expensive um, and um, there's the cost of the rally itself which um, um, the freshest figures i could find is this and it was the same when when we entered was um, 50,000 amounts to it's in pounds because it's a british organisation but it mm-hmm. amounts to just over 50,000 us dollars for wow. the two you, so per car and um, and that's you know that kind of works out so that you know you'd say oh, well, that works out at about twelve, fourteen hundred dollars a day, but um, you know, that's, that's, that's just one price tag. There's also um, fuel, um, obviously, which mm-hmm. is quite a lot of, sort of shipping the vehicle to Beijing from wherever you are in the world, and then shipping it from Paris to wherever you are in the world, unless you happen to be in one of those two cities. And um, insurance, you can imagine that's you know, not cheap. Right. Um, car insurance but um and medical insurance well, I think that's kind of just sli- that's a little bit more regular um the the big ticket price um unless you are just armed with this already, which we weren't is a car and if mm. you're serious about trying to win then um then it's got to, the car can be cheap as chips ours was we bought it on the internet um from a guy in Michigan. Um, from a picture, it was just a rolling shell. There was nothing in it. It was just kind of metal sheets stuck together, and we shipped it over to the UK. And then we started shopping, um, cherry picking parts from the internet. I mean, it allowed, the internet has completely changed preparing a rally car. But you know, we found parts um, for the car from all over the world, and we put, you know, we put it together, and we and, and we put some of that out to um, professionals as well. So it was a real mix, but that is expensive business and it, that I really it's hard to put a figure on because some people are doing vintage Rolls Royces and some people are doing kind of more robust American cars like the one um, that we chose to do it in and we, we deliberately chose a Ford basically the, the Chevys and the Fords and the Chryslers um, of, that, of, the, of the vintage that we were in kind of the late 30s 40s there's that kind of era Those were the cars that were built for long distance. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas, you know, all the beautiful Ferraris and Rolls Royces and Bentleys and Jaguars and Lamborghinis, all of those Porsches, all of those were built um, really kind of for showing off on beautiful European coastal roads Mm
1: -hmm. and were not
0: there for um, doing these big distances. Whereas the big old American cars were all about kind of car salesmen kind of with big big boot trunks, as you call them, trunks, you know, filling them with their wares and heading across you know, thousands of miles of American landscape to sell their wares. And it's a great type of car. They, they've constantly been in the top three, those kinds of cars, because the, the big trunk you turn into a space for fuel, for a, a massive fuel tank, so you're stopping less frequently. And um, they do, you know, they, they do kind of know about distance, those kind of vehicles. So, um, so putting a price on that you know is a tougher, but i mean you're not it's very very hard to do that for under a hundred thousand dollars, I would say, mm-hmm. and very easy to do that for over two hundred thousand yeah. thousand dollars um and most people, of course, cause these figures are so high, get sponsorship um but there is a lot of people that don't because a lot of people who do this, who've got time and those kind of numbers are um very successful, older. People who are who are kind of in their fifties or sixties, they they're running a company, they're captains of industry, and she or he um, feel like they're able to take off that chunk of time, and they've got the money as well to back themselves on that kind of a trip. Um, We were so not that category, so um, and so were others too, and so we sought um, we sought sponsors who would be interested in that kind of race. We had one that was a Chinese insurance company, we had a British tour operator, um, and we just, you know, and it's very, you know, people cover the sides of their cars in the stickers from sponsors, and um, and that's one way of kind of, uh, of dealing with these very high price tags.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, as far as experience, um, do you need to be an experienced rally driver to, to enter the race, uh, and also, do you need to know how to fix cars, Um, to be on the race
0: you need to know how to fix cars um i i think if you've built your own car you've or you've been involved in the process of building your car that stuff just um which you really should i mean if if to to kind of source you know to to outsource that entire process could be fine but you do really need to know how your workings of your car now this these are easy cars compared to our modern day cars where we can't fix our cars anymore because they're It's so driven by computers, you know, to to fix a car, you need to kind of plug it into a, into a computer and then it tells you where the problem is. But these older cars, they are so analog. If you know how an engine works, you know, it's, um, they're much more straightforward. And if you've got any engagement in your car, which I think you would have if you were embarking on this kind of a, trip then mm-hmm. you know, it's automatically this interest um so yes you absolutely know, need to know how to fix your car you need to have i mean we left the manual by the side of our bed um the day we left so i mean you, you've got to we kind of thought oh my God, christ how <laughs> are we gonna remember but in truth we it, everything is in your head because you spent so much um time with this vehicle and um, and you've got to practice in it too, and, and practice changing. One of the things we'll be doing a lot of is changing tires. Mm-hmm. I think we nine was it or thirteen? We changed a lot of tires over you know the course of that of a month plus, and and you you really want to change a tire quickly. So we used to sit in a front drive and with a stopwatch, and then just say, ready, 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 go, and then we'd jump out of the car and <laughs> uh, and we must have done that you know dozens and dozens of times so that we were getting really slick. And changing tires as quickly as we could and so yes i think um there are i mean there are there are um the the race itself the rally organisers, they do have mechanics who are around but you know journeys can be spread out from a very long way and their job isn't to fix your car their job is really to kind of find a tow truck for you or to mm-hmm. kind of give you assistance or but they're, you know, they are not their their job is meant to be quite soft, the kind of curtailed. And so it is really you and your co driver against against everybody else.
1: Mm-hmm. Now what if you uh what if you've had that car know how, but you've never driven in a rally race before? Could this be your first race?
0: It was our first race. Um, so yes is the answer to that. I think um, the only practice that we did was really, we went to um, South Wales a few hours to the west of London and where we knew there was some some empty roads and some long beaches to practice on sand. And But it wasn't, our, actually that wasn't our car. Um, but then we also went to, um, to the Alps and we did some ice driving, but in modern cars, but just to get a sense, because ice driving is very similar to driving on sand and on gravel. And then um, we did some, in, again in our car, um, we did some driving around some fields as fast as we could. I think, absolutely. I mean, we, that may, that probably, in summary, makes it sound like we did an awful lot of prep, prep work, but we didn't, that was probably amounted to five days. And um, we both, you know, we both love to drive. We both love to drive quite quickly. Um, I think you've got to have a love of speed and a fearlessness attached to that. And um, but absolutely, it can be your for your first rally. Um, they you know, the people that generally win are more experienced rallyers. Uh-huh. Maybe that, but um, but you know we didn't have we'd never done a rally and we came third. So it's totally possible. Of course it is. And and perhaps you know you know perhaps you can also win. Who knows? But I um, but there were some very very serious rallyers on the. On um, on ours, and I think subsequently that I've seen some of the same names pop up. So it's a real mixed bag, and there's some very again, serious mechanics too. There was there was a Porsche that was driving, um, and the, one of the one of the co-drivers nicknamed um, Doctor Porsche because he is kind of the rena- most renowned Porsche engineer. So I think um, you know there's a lot of quite serious professional skill set um, around one. Um, but it, it, you can be as green as you like, and it turns out you can do quite well.
1: I love that. And as far as navigating on this route, I, I know you probably don't have access to Google Maps in the middle of Mongolia. How are you able to stay on track and, and get to the next spot if, if you don't have service? No,
0: well there's GPS, there's, there it is done by, basically by GPS. So okay. you have a navigation system and um, you have something called a Monit, um, which measures kind of the distance that you're driving very accurately, where well, you have, you have to kind of um, um, calibrate that when you start, so that it kind of has a, a kilometre kind of down. And so that you, and you recalibrate that every now and then, because it kind of, it does lose distance after a while. But, but, you know, it's definitely with tools and with apps that you're doing it. Um, not necessarily through your phone, but through other kind of GPS networks and other technology that you can fix to, you know, your windscreen, windshield. And um, there are rallies out there. The rally I next want to do is in Sahara, it's an all-women's rally, and that is proper old-fashioned navigation. There's no phones, no sat phones, no GPS. No, um, it's all pencil and paper and, and hard copy maps. Um, so those do exist, but this one you absolutely, particularly in Mongolia, um, are allowed to use GPS. After that, I and mean, we did mostly use hard copy maps in truth because it really gives you a sense of scale and distance. So in Russia, we were using these massive kind of ring bound maps to get a sense of you know where we were going and different routes that one could take. So it was a bit of a mix, but um, yes, the technology in this one is plays an important part.
1: Great. And as far as what you should bring uh, for this race, what were some of your most used items um, that you used along your journey?
0: I would say bring as little as possible um, because just like I, it's slightly my advice for any trip at all, but um, the only stuff you should really be taking is stuff to fix the car and Mm -hmm. spare parts. And in terms of, um, you know, your own personal items you really don't want to take more than a a few t-shirts everyone wears these um wear these kind of mechanic suits to kind of to to go over the clothes that you're wearing um when you're under the car trying to fix things just so that your t-shirt the next day is clean but god we're absolutely filthy I, the reason i am kind of low on gear is because i was so geared up i was taking all sorts of video cameras and stills cameras and laptops and i was kind of sending all this information back to editors in um in London and and so I had I had so much um I had so I had really heavy bags and it meant that when we were going into a property sometimes you camp and sometimes you're staying in guest houses for a security point of view I was having to love all that in and um and I you know I did think God what a dream it would be if I wasn't working because all you would then need is just an is slightly an overnight a toothbrush and and a change of underwear and a change of shirt but mm-hmm. probably not every day Darry said and there's a lot of washing in the streams and um and so on so the most used items would all be related to fixing the car really there was nothing useful from a personal it's, this is not a vacation so it was it was all about tools and spare parts and you can never have enough of those I would say like we would go we were going through spare parts um all the time
1: mm-hmm now, did you ever have two flat tires at the same time, or was it typically only one bad tire at a time?
0: In, in the same day,
1: or even at the same time, did you ever blow out two tires? Did you oh, need to have multiple tires?
0: Um, no, I think we did have two in the same day, but not um in the same moment.
1: Okay, good, good.
0: Sounds
1: like you've had. <laughs> I mean, this sounds like. Uh, an incredible adventure, and and you just don't know what to expect on each day and who you're going to meet, and oh I guess you know where your car is going to go, but uh, this it sounds just really fun um, and a lot of hard work. Now, Do you have any uh, additional tips that you would give to our listeners if they are thinking about embarking on this race? Um.
0: I would, I would say. I mean, as a, not to kind of repeat myself, but I would say pack lighter than you think when it comes to kind of oneself, and slightly heavier when it comes to tools and spare parts. That would be kind of my critical one.
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: would say also um, be quite boot camp organized when it comes to the, the navigator. Particularly, it's quite good to have color coded pens and a pen like a pencil and an eraser because that's it's really useful to kind of for errors and and that you know these folders are all put there's a maybe a place that you can build in the car where you have all the maps kind of next to each other and a lot of it is comes through organization you you have specific times that you need to leave certain places and and you don't want to lose because you just didn't get on top of the admin that would be painful like if your car blows up that's one thing but if you just (laughs) <laughs> miss time because your your timesheet was in the wrong pocket of the car and you couldn't find it. That, that would be pain really quite painful so I think kind of an organization um, of all the paperwork which is actually strangely quite heavy um would be useful I think um from a safety point of view like we had a we had an internal frame to the car um some people you know we want to wear helmets i i think we might wear helmets if we did it again um but from a safety point of view um that's something to definitely consider and um i think you know th- being brave is is one of the because it's it, if you want to if you want to go for this and try and and um and win it it does require quite a lot of courage just at those moments when you're you know when you're feeling sick to your stomach and don't and I there was this there was an incredible moment kind of in western Russia just before we entered Ukraine where we were driving on regular roads but in a quite rural area and this Russian couple were on the side of the road on the left and looked like she was taking a photo and I couldn't really see what his sign said but there's a lot of you know people cheering you on on the sides of the roads around towns and most of those are in the local language, and that might have been in Cyrillic. But as we got closer, we read what he had written in English, and it's a very kind of Slavic-looking couple, and it said, fortune favours the brave. And we really felt that, like we had chill bumps, and we really felt that, that you know, at the times when we'd been the most tired, you know, exhaust, to the point of exhaustion, um, where we'd been the most frustrated, where we'd where we'd really had to dig deep it we knew that every time that we took some a very brave courageous move it paid off and um and that is to do with the ebb and flow as well like there was days when my co-driver was more tired and I wasn't and we pick each other up in other days Um, I mean it wasn't always that there was days definitely when we were both tired but um it is that teamwork of, of um trying to engender courage in the other is i think really important if you're quite serious about the race
1: that is so well said and that applies to many parts of our lives i feel like it's when we take those bravest steps in life is when it has the biggest payoff right. um, so um oh, what a metaphor uh, truly michelle Thank you for, for joining us today on Experiences You Should Have. Uh, I will be including a full write-up of the experience as well as uh, links to additional sources to give more information of, of how you could sign up for this race and photos. Uh, so please go to experiencesyoushouldhave.com. And, and Michelle, uh, is there any last words you'd like to add?
0: Well, no, just that I'm the next one I'm thinking about. If there's any women are listening who are interested in a rally, it's much more um, doable in terms of time, and it's a less of financial commitment. There's a rally in in Morocco, mostly in the Sahara, um, and it's called the Rally Aisha de Gazelle, and that's every year around March, and it's just over a week long, and it's not old cars, it's modern cars, and there is a co-driver and you only use you know old-fashioned equipment and it's quite you know you're quite very off-grid and it's I think that one I haven't done it yet but I'm hoping to do it in March next year that one Bye. for me I think is extraordinarily a spark like an aspiration I would um love to compete in that so if, if someone isn't you know doesn't have the time or you know or, and then they're a woman, um, which is <laughs> then I would look at that one too. I think that one sounds really exciting. It's definitely captured my imagination.
1: That sounds fantastic. And after March, we'd love to have you back on the show and, and really hear about that experience.
0: Thank you, Gail, for having me and thank you for your time.
1: Yes, thank you so much. I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Experiences You Should Have, your how-to guide for amazing experiences, and I have a very important task for you to do. Right now, you need to call your mom, call your brother, sister, father, ex-boss, your worst enemy, whoever it is in your life that you might be thinking about at this moment in time, and tell them about Experiences You Should Have podcast, because What we're trying to do, or at least what I'm trying to do, is introduce the world to unique experiences that can be replicated and give a how-to guide to make them happen. And I put a lot of work into this show. And if you could just tell someone, tweet, Instagram, whatever it is that you do, I would greatly appreciate it. Also, if you are an Apple user and you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, and if you love the show, I would greatly appreciate a five-star review. And if you don't like the show, then please do not leave a review. I I don't want to hear about it. Don't want to see it. And also, if you know of a unique experience that can be replicated, preferably off the beaten path that you would like to share, then go to experiencesyoushouldhave.com, click on contact and shoot me a note because it might wind you up on the show. Also, if you would like to find out more information about the Peking to Paris Motor Rally, including links, pictures, more information, go to experiencesyoushouldhave.com, click on episodes, and there you're going to see beautiful, well written show note on this episode, plus many other show notes from past episodes, they can give you that true guide to make these cool things happen in life. And we always walk through costs, skills needed, best time, and get you on that roadmap to know how you need to save and what you need to do to get there. And I am an experienced person. I figure if you are listening to the show, you are also an experienced seeker. And us experienced seekers got to band together and learn about cool new experiences to make happen in the world. So thank you for listening and truly appreciate it. And until next time.